Dude, shout out to a simpler time in America when all of us were captivated by the California raisins. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Studios, it's the Press Box Summer Edition. Come on, football, go, go! Come on, play football! Tyler Bischoff. Wow, you work here? Best seat in the house. Yeah, you do! (laughs) (laughs) I've been laughing for too long. And Adam Candy. Doesn't this seem like cheating? She's rich. She's cheating at life. On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Graney is out today, and that means you get the full three hours of Adam Candy. Hello, Adam. How are you? Why must we threaten the listeners at 7 a.m.? That's what we're here for. Big threats at 7 a.m. We want to scare them into watching or listening to Adam Candy. Good thing they don't have to watch you, too. That would be scary. Oh, dear God. I don't wish that upon my family and friends, (laughs) let alone the great people on ESPN Las Vegas. All right. Here we go. The first bite. Should the Raiders trade Josh Jacobs? Josh McDaniels yesterday talking to the media said that they are not, they have no desire to trade Josh Jacobs. Uh, He played in the preseason opener. It was with most of the starting offensive linemen, though not Colton Miller. Derek Carr, Devontae Adams, Hunter Renfro did not play in the preseason opener. Obviously, you've got the backstory of Josh Jacobs not having his fifth-year option picked up, so he'll be a free agent after the season. They also used one of their draft picks, uh, one of their earlier draft picks after trading Devontae Adams on Zamir White, another running back. So do you believe McDaniels when he says the whole Josh Jacobs needs to get live game action because he's a running back? Because that's been his reasoning for why Josh Jacobs played in that first preseason game. How much you believe Josh McDaniels about Josh Jacobs has everything to do with how much you believe Josh McDaniels is going to replicate, and remember, this is all in capital letters, the Patriot way, right? (laughs) If he's going to really try to do this as Belichick light, then I absolutely believe that he's going to get all the running backs equal time. Everybody's going to get in and everybody's going to get run. But everything we've seen from McDaniels so far has been saying that he's not necessarily just going to clone everything that goes on in New England. So I don't know that you can just take it all at face value on Josh Jacobs. And I'm really glad, by the way, that you cleared up what you were starting to say. You started to say Josh McDaniels said they're not trading. Your Wait, Josh McDaniels said we have no desire to trade Josh Jacobs. I mean... We've all been in a position in our lives before where we've had something where it's like, yeah, it's good enough. I have no desire to get rid of it. But if something better came along, I certainly would be open to uh, open to that possibility. And that, to me, sounded like the signal that Josh McDaniels was sending. Wow. That's how Tyler feels about me. Well, I don't know if you're good enough, but it's what it's what I got. Um, That's so that's the interesting part, because. I can't imagine the Raiders would get offered something better than like a fifth or sixth round pick for Jacobs. Like the idea that they would trade him, I don't think it's crazy. If somebody called up the Raiders today and said, hey, um, here's a second round pick, Josh Jacobs is gone. But can you like, can you envision a team giving up something that's like worthwhile for Jacobs? 
Okay, trivia time for you and then, of course, for the listeners. When was the last time an NFL team traded anything better than a fourth-round pick for a running back? Was it the Texans? Or was there one more recent than that? You can count the Texans if you want because there was a second-round pick involved in the trade for between uh, them and Arizona with DeAndre Hopkins and David Johnson. But if you want to talk purely a running back was traded for a high pick, you have to go back to 2013 for the disastrous Trent Richardson <laughs> trade with Cleveland and Indianapolis. Before that, you have to go even farther back to the New England Patriots trading a two for Corey Dillon in 2004. So if you are out there thinking to yourselves, oh man, Josh Jacobs has been a great running back. Yeah, Raiders might be able to get something for him. Nope. No, they won't. Because even when the league valued running backs, you couldn't get a trade for a running back for a high pick. And the league is certainly not valuing running backs right now. Did, did that Trent Richardson trade scare enough teams off? Was that the trade that made a lot of teams realize, oh, maybe we shouldn't actually value this position? I think so, because Trent Richardson also was the number three pick in the draft. <laughs> so, okay, if you're the Raiders right now, what pick would you want back that would provide you more value than what Josh Jacobs would actually provide you this season? Even if it's just one year of Josh Jacobs, and he's splitting time with Samir White, there's still some value there. What pick to you would be high enough to say, yep, that's worth it, I'm going to pull the trigger? Yeah, what changes Josh McDaniels from we have no desire to it was too good for us to pass up? Uh, it's a four, but I don't think they're getting a four because a four is the ceiling of what teams have been willing to trade for a running back over the last few years. So I think you're probably, if the Raiders, if they can get a five, they probably have to do it. Because are you uncomfortable going into this season with Samir White and Amir Abdullah and Kenyon Drake? I'm not. I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah, I, and I, I don't think most teams should have a big problem if, you know, Zamir White's going to lead your team in carries as a rookie because we see that on a fairly regular basis. Rookie running backs have good seasons because that's when, that's when they're most valuable to NFL teams and that's when they're going to get the most playing time often is, hey, you just came out of college. Welcome to the NFL. You're not completely broken yet, but don't worry, you will be soon. So I think that's that would be a good thing for the Raiders if they traded them for a fourth-round pick. I think that we, if you and I did a show the next day, we'd say, good job, Josh McDaniels. Good trade. Now you got Samir White and you got an extra fourth-round pick in the future for a guy that you were going to get one season out of, and that was it. But I like in all seriousness, I think right now if the Raiders are fielding trade calls, unless there's just – a bad general manager out there, they might not even be getting an actual pick. Like, it might be a pick swap. Like, it might be, hey, I will send you a fifth, but make sure you send us back a seventh with Josh Jacobs. Well, how about this? It's not like a running back is necessarily traded for a draft pick every time, right? Uh, go back to the LaShawn McCoy trade where he was traded from Philadelphia to Buffalo for Kiko Alonso going the other way. Now, LaShawn McCoy was at higher value at the time but if you're the Raiders right now and you have the massive massive holes on the offensive line that you do would you not be willing to trade for sort of a swing tackle level of player right now they absolutely should be willing to if the offer is out there oh I like that one yeah I mean that that would I don't I'm not gonna sit here and pretend like I know what the tackle trade market is in the NFL but yeah if if there's somebody of that level that they could trade Josh Jacobs straight up for it would absolutely be worth it for the Raiders to do so because we're 
listen, we're, we're going to be having this conversation for the entirety of the season unless they do something. We're gonna be, we've been having it for the entirety of the offseason about who's starting on this offensive line. Brandon, Parker, Alex, Leatherwood. Like, there, There's just no way you can be a team that's going into it and expect to make the playoffs, and it's like that's your decision between those two guys. And so if there's an opportunity to add a player that could be better than them and what you lose is Josh Jacobs, that's a that's 100% something the Raiders should do. Now, I, again, I'm not going to pretend like I know what the tackle trade market is, so I don't know if that exists. But if it's out there, that would be an- another trade that if you and I did a show the next day, we'd probably come on here and say, yep, good job, Josh McDaniels. Yeah, well, we have Charles Robinson coming on at 8.30 this morning. I think that's a great question for someone who's an NFL expert to say, so what's the tackle trade market look like right now? Uh, by the way, shout out to Raiders PR real quick for how hard they've pushed the Lester Cotton story uh, this preseason to try to make the offensive line look a little bit better. Every piece of the broadcast had something about that uh, when the Raiders played in the Hall of Fame game about Lester Cotton recommitting himself to football and apparently instantly becoming the Raiders' second-best offensive lineman. You know what my favorite part of the Hall of Fame game broadcast was when Chris Collinsworth was trying to talk up Trayvon Walker and he was like, now listen, he's going up against Brandon Parker who might start. This is good on good. He used the phrase good on good to describe Brandon Parker. And I was like, listen, he might be starting, but that does not make it good on good out there. The only way it would have been good on good is if Trayvon Walker is going against Denzel good. (laughs) And so, okay, the Lester Cotton thing, it's a little bit funny because even if Lester Cotton is this great story and becomes a very, very good guard, right, is, is, oh, he's a great offensive lineman. That would make him the second best offensive lineman on this team, and they would still have three big question marks across the rest of the line. Like, Colton Miller's the only proven offensive lineman. Andre James is currently slotted in as the second best offensive lineman, and he wasn't exactly a good center last year. Like, he was passable. But that was it. And so, like, even if Lester Cotton was really good, they still have big holes on the offensive line to fill. I think that's the biggest problem is there's only one for sure offensive lineman that we know. And let's say Lester Cotton's good, great. Or even if they were to trade for a swing tackle that's better than Parker or Leatherwood, you're still going to have multiple holes on the offensive line. And I guess I just don't understand how this continues to be ignored as a story for the Raiders. Chris Collinsworth also got on at the beginning of that broadcast on the Hall of Fame game and talked about the Raiders as legitimate Super Bowl contenders. And yes, there are positions on the offense where they are Super Bowl contenders, but as a team, when you have the holes that this team has, both on the offensive line in the secondary, you can't straight out say that they're a Super Bowl contender. So look, I am fully on board with the fact that the Raiders could be a better team this year than they have been in the past. But to immediately say, oh, yeah, well, this is a team that's going to be a Super Bowl contender. Well, if your second best offensive lineman had a PFF grade last year of 64, I don't think that's something that you can immediately say, yeah, we're going to be able to protect Derek Carr and get the job done, no matter how good Josh McDaniels and the New England offense have been in the past at getting the ball out fast with Tom Brady. My thought process, and I'm going to say this as many times as I can, so if I end up being right, I'll get to take a victory lap. I think the Raiders came in and decided this offseason that that basically there was going to be a two-offseason build for McDaniels and Ziggler. 
And this offseason, they came in and they were like, let's take care of the key positions. Get quarterback locked up, go get Devontae Adams, pair him with Hunter Renfro, pay both of those guys, get your defensive ends figured out with Max Crosby and Chandler Jones. Those are, you know, the majority of the key positions. Add Colton Miller, who they inherited, into that. And the next offseason is when, all right, let's fix the offensive line. Let's fix the secondary. Because it's... with the, the Raiders made the playoffs, but they still had a lot of holes on the roster. It's hard to fix an entire roster in one offseason. I think they came in and said this is a two-offseason thing. And next year, after they're you know, competitive but probably not a contender this year, that's when we'll see an offensive line rebuild, a secondary that's made over. And then, if everything goes well or the majority of things go well, then 2023 is when they sort of plan to be a Super Bowl contender. I don't mind that in theory. But I think the practical applications of the salary cap are going to make that very yeah. difficult on the Raiders because they already, as of today, right now, have the second most dead cap money in the NFL going into next season with nearly $15 million dead on the cap before they even start spending on next year. And the only reason they're not at the top is because the Eagles are still paying Carson Wentz, <laughs> believe it or not, and they have $25 million in dead cap. But I'm going to make a comparison to the Atlanta Falcons, Tyler, because they decided to speed up the dead cap process, right? They decided we're going to take this massive hit on Matt Ryan this year so we can just get past this and move on. Well, the Raiders did the opposite this offseason as they got ready for this year. They jettisoned the Corey Littletons of the world, and took on the dead cap hit in order to make this team more competitive next year. Now, you can look at that dead cap and say, oh, well, they have a bunch of players under contract. No, no, they don't. They have 41 players under contract for next year. That is tied for the least in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs, who go into next year with no dead money on their cap. The Raiders are going to be in a massive cap crunch come next offseason. So if the plan was oh, it's going to happen next year, they better be able to do some Simone Biles-level gymnastics with that cap. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into the NBA because Kevin Durant, hey, suddenly doesn't like Steve Nash. When you look at what they've done, separate of, like, the comparisons, it's some unbelievable from both of them and that transcend the game of basketball, you know what I'm saying? I've heard people say, you're the LeBron of this, you know what I'm saying? So (laughs) he's in that realm, too. You're listening to The Press Box, Summer Edition, featuring Adam Candy. Kevin Durant finally had a meeting with the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, Joseph Tsai. And according to Sham Sharnia, he told Joseph Tsai that he had to choose between Kevin Durant or the duo of Sean Marks, their general manager, and Steve Nash, their head coach. They met over the weekend. In London, Durant said he still wants to be traded, uh, but I guess he would consider coming back if those two were gone. Uh, The NBA is the one place where players hold enough power for this to be a legitimate conversation. Maybe quarterbacks in the NFL, a few quarterbacks in the NFL could as well, but that's kind of it. So if you're Joseph Tsai, you're running the Brooklyn Nets here, uh, should you take Kevin Durant and fire Sean Marks and fire Steve Nash? Not unless you want that franchise to be gutted of all credibility for as long as you own it, because that's exactly what you would be doing. You'd be telling every player of any level similar to Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, etc., that 
they now own the franchise because what's happened so far this offseason is this front office has stood strong, right? Sean Marks came out early and said, we're going to change the culture here. Then they wouldn't give Kyrie a long-term deal, so he opted into his uh, one-year player option. And now Kevin Durant is going to be the last one, apparently, to try to push these buttons. So, Tyler, my question back to you is, what exactly is it in the direction of the franchise that Kevin Durant's not happy with? Because it, <laughs> unless it's a failure to give Kyrie Irving a long-term deal, I don't see what's changed. And if Kevin Durant is willing to stand that hard for Kyrie Irving, it might have helped to do it while the Kyrie Irving negotiation was still going on. Because right now, to say you don't like the direction of the franchise, well, the only thing that's changed is James Harden forced his way out. And nothing else has changed with this franchise. So I understand that players have to try to sell some sort of reasoning that the public might stomach for why they want to move. But I don't buy it with Kevin Durant saying, I don't like the direction of the franchise because it's the same direction they've been going. So what I thought was interesting in Sham Sharnia's story about this is after he sort of laid out, hey, Kevin Durant met with Joseph Tsai, Kevin Durant said, hey, you got to fire the GM or the head coach or I still want to trade. He had in a paragraph later on in the story, the Nets know why Kevin Durant wants a trade, which wasn't explicitly stated, but implicitly sort of says what you're saying here, that, yeah, he's saying this whole thing about not liking the coach and the GM, but there's another reason that there's something else that led Kevin Durant to ask for a trade. And maybe, like you're suggesting, this is just sort of a, hey, put on for the public. Well, it's me or the head coach and the GM. I don't like where those guys are taking the team. But in reality, there's something else that's leading Kevin Durant to want this trade out of Brooklyn that we still don't know yet. Imagine that you're, Tyler, you're, you're negotiating for a job, right? And it's a job you don't necessarily want, but you need a job, and they might be willing to pay you a lot to do the job. And you go in there, and you make what is a completely unreasonable salary request, or you ask for 10 weeks of time off. You go in there, and you ask for something that you know is simply not possible, so that when they say no, you can come back and say, well, you know what? I tried. I gave you terms I would have signed for. I gave you terms that would have been good enough for me. That's, to me, what Kevin Durant is going in there and doing. Yeah. Does he really think the owner is going to can the GM and the coach? Like, do you really think that's going to happen if you're Kevin Durant? Kevin Durant is way too smart for that. There are a lot of things you can say about the way Kevin Durant has chosen to conduct the business side of basketball, but one thing you will never be able to say is the dude doesn't know what he's doing. So let's take it to the next step here and assume that the Brooklyn Nets don't fire Steve Nash and Sean Marks. Do you believe Kevin Durant would sit out? Do you believe he would decide, well, I've requested a trade, I've made whatever offer, hey, get rid of these guys and I'll stick around. They haven't done either. Now I'm going to sit out. Do you believe he would do that with, what is it, four years left on his contract? I don't know that any of us are qualified to say what Kevin Durant would choose to do in that situation, right? 34 years old, two rings in his pocket, four years left on the contract, uh, could Kevin Durant be someone who benefited from a year of rest at his age? Yep, he absolutely could. Guy's been in the league for a long, long time at this point. So I don't think it's necessarily out of the question to say, yeah, Kevin Durant's not going to play this year. He'll come back and he'll kill it after that because I don't think that Kevin Durant is done by any stretch of the imagination. I just don't think that with four years left on the contract, 
for a guy who has had questions dogging him his entire career of is he going to be able to hold up physically that another team is going to swoop in and give the Nets exactly what they want. Yeah, and this is like that's the I think the interesting part here is are the can the Nets do essentially what the 76ers did with Ben Simmons, right? Ben Simmons was not playing and Daryl Morey kept talking about, well, I'm not trading him for nothing. I'm trading him for players or a player that would make an impact on winning a championship. And listen, I did not think Daryl Morey was going to get that. But he got James Harden. Even though James Harden has not been the same James Harden we saw in Houston that was MVP-level James Harden, he still ended up getting James Harden, which was better than I expected for Ben Simmons. And I'm curious, can the Brooklyn Nets do the same thing, right? Again, if this, this is if Kevin Durant sits out. I guess technically if he plays, they might still be in the same situation. But... Can they essentially do the same thing? Can they have a guy who's unhappy that wants to be traded, who's obviously really good and would command, should command a ridiculous amount of assets back? Can the, that front office, can that team hold out long enough and not trade Kevin Durant until they get the offer that they want? It might never come, and it might be a situation that doesn't get resolved like the Ben Simmons in Philadelphia does. But is that, is that a comparable, and can Brooklyn essentially do the same thing? Because they want a lot more than teams have been willing to offer. It's been, the reports are like, ah, the Celtics talked about sending Jalen Brown and some other assets, but they wanted Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, right? We've had multiple reports from different teams that are similar to that. Can the Nets basically wait it out and see if they can actually get that offer? Because, hey, some other NBA star is unhappy and would, be, would love to swap and go to Brooklyn with their current situation. I wonder if the Nets can do the same thing that the Sixers ultimately did with Ben Simmons. Quick aside on that trade offer. If Boston chose to nix the deal over Marcus Smart, that's insane. Insane. I don't care how good you think Marcus Smart is. He is not the player that you say, that's the reason we didn't get Kevin Durant and pair him with Jason Tatum. That's absolute insanity if that's what blew up the deal now I don't know what the rest of the draft pick compensation situation was maybe the other rotation player that we're talking about is someone like Robert Williams and then I say okay it's a lot but the other side of that story is that the team that trades for Kevin Durant is going to win the trade probably 99% of the time unless Kevin Durant gets hurt because he's Kevin Durant and he probably still has a few years of being Kevin Durant left so could Sean Marks try to pull off what Daryl Morey did? Absolutely, because Tyler, let me paint you the ultimate revenge scenario. How about Kyrie Irving getting in there along with Ben Simmons, two players who have probably caught more crap, rightfully for a lot of reasons, than a lot of NBA players in history. Can you imagine both of them coming in in full FU mode with no Kevin Durant there? (laughs) That would be the ultimate Kyrie Irving to come in there, average 30 and 10 while Kevin Durant is out, have an MVP level campaign and have everybody talking about, wow, I can't believe this is what we were missing with Kyrie Irving. Yeah, be be a fun season. He still won't be able to play in Toronto, though, because the NBA is not changing that stance. All right, coming up next, David Roth joins the show. We're on one. I lost count. Dishwasher watch. David Roth from Defector is with us on the press box. Subscribe to the distraction on Stitcher and use the promo code distract for a free month of Stitcher premium. When the ending comes. Good morning, David. How are you today? I'm good. How are you all? Oh, great. All right. 
Edwin Diaz and his intro uh, has been uh, pretty popular on Twitter the last 48 hours or so. Did the whole closer intro thing peak in like the early 2000s? Like, is that when it was the highlight of, hey, a closer has a badass intro when he comes into the game? Yeah, I think you can basically track it alongside like the Attitude Era and pro wrestling. But that was like, anytime when like the crotch chop gesture was like very mainstream, (laughs) that's like when you're going to get really good closer intros. The Diaz one is cool to me because it has like, a different sort of energy to it. I feel like that early aughts one kind of peaked. Like, I remember the Mets had one for when Hansel Robles would come in to pitch. And, like, no one, you shouldn't do that. Like, he was, like, a guy who, to the extent that I have any memory of him, it was uh, that every time he would give up a home run, he would point in the air like it was a pop-up, like showing everybody where the ball was, and then it would land, like, 440 feet away. So you don't need, like, an intro that has, like, Ride the Lightning and, like, video effects on the scoreboard. Like, we, everybody knows he's going to give up, like, a double and a walk. You know, whereas with Diaz, it's got, like, the music's pretty good. They got, like, a little bit of, uh, you know, extra participation from the crowd. The one thing you can't see that you get at the stadium that kind of, as a friend of mine pointed out, takes the snap out of it, is that Diaz is, like, he's a nice guy. And so the stuff, you know, he's coming in, like the music's playing, everybody's like real intense. And then on the scoreboard, it's him like pretending to play the trumpet and like kind of smiling and being goofy. And that does take the, the energy out from it. Like he should be just like scowling, you know, but I don't think he really has that in him. Neither of you paying proper respect to Enter Sandman for Rivera or Hell's Bells for uh, Trevor Hoffman is very disappointing considering your encyclopedic be- baseball knowledge. Uh, by the way, Hansel, <laughs> Hansel Robles, when he used to come in with the Angels, I've been at an Angels game when they had an intro for him. It was the video that really sold it because there was just a random video shot of like an Angels staffer with a white horse mask over his head up in the press <laughs> box somewhere. And it was the most terrifying thing only because it had like a like a B-level Saw movie effect to it where you're like, what is that? I'm actually scared of it because I don't understand it. So I think that's what we should go toward for closer intros. Just stuff that randomly terrifies people. Yeah, that's a good idea. Like going in more of a like a found footage horror movie direction. Yes! Like, you know, like the last shot in the Blair Witch Project. That's actually, I mean, again, it's scary if Hansel Robles is pitching for the team that you care about. <laughs> but yeah, I'd rather like weird, like shaky footage of someone just staring at a wall and you're like, why are they doing that? Then, yeah, then, like, the umpteenth, like, video toaster, like, lightning effect. Robles, I'm so happy that the Angels are continuing to just, like, pioneer. I mean, they've got a lot of things that they do better than anybody else. Most of them are bad. But the idea of just having, like, avant-garde video stuff or just, like, everybody gets an intro, like, regardless of how important they are to the team, that was true when I was going to games there when I was in college. And I always admired it. Like, because, you know, the Mets were not... Uh, they weren't doing the most, like in the Wilpon years. Like they, they weren't trying very hard. Whereas, like I remember being at an Angels game when I was in school, and Shigatoshi Hasegawa came in to pitch, and they had, like, they played getting jiggy with it, and then they had the scoreboard flashing uh, the words getting getting shiggy with it, and then they had like some little video stuff for him, and I thought that was great. Like this is their, you know, like sort of like a like fireman like seventh inning guy. But like taking the time to do uh, getting shiggy with it for him shows that he was he was cared for. 
All right. As a Mets fan, how optimistic are you about Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer actually both making postseason starts? Uh, I mean, cautiously, very optimistic. I DeGrom, I wrote about this the other day. Like, I feel like it's really nervous-making to watch him in a way just because of the fact that he's like, I mean, he seems back, and yet, even taking out the you know the sort of the pitch count thing and they're they're throttling him for you know the next little foreseeable future while they step him up, he just is doing so much <laughs> that like because he's incapable of pacing himself because he's not gonna like back off at all on any of this. It makes it seem likelier that something is is gonna pop. Scherzer, I have a new appreciation for because he really you know give or take the injury issues that he had earlier this season, he's just like absolutely in like energy saver mode while continuing to be super dominant. Like that he's just a master of the task at hand. DeGrom obviously is just as much of a virtuoso. It's just like, he's got this like skinny body that he insists on making throw 102 miles an hour. And like, so that part of it, we like, you just never know when something's going to sproing again. Uh, if they're both pitching uh, in the postseason, then like I don't think that there's anything that I would rule out as an outcome for the team. And I say that as someone who hates saying things like that. But I mean, just you saw it over the week over the weekend that like the Braves are really, really good. They've been playing like the 27 Yankees for the last two months, and didn't have a prayer up there against those two guys two days in a row. Like that's a you know in a short series that is an incredible advantage to have. I think anyone who asks a Mets fan about their level of optimism has the question completely upside down. The question <laughs> yes. for me is, what will have to happen in a negative sense? How small of a thing will have to go wrong for your impending sense of dread to take <laughs> you over again? So we had, I actually, um, well, I'll give you an example of that. So I'm in a, a DM with like 65 mentally ill Mets fans uh, across the country. <laughs> Certain, I mean, again, redundant, but the moment when Taiwan Walker caught a cleat and clearly tweaked something and his pitches were off, he was, like, was elevating his breaking pitches in a way that, you know, the, the game that they lost to the Braves. Uh, the way him seeming hurt and then the team leaving him out there for two innings to wear it when he clearly seemed off, that was the first moment of like real bad vibes. Like I think of this season, but certainly in the DM, everybody was like, Oh God, here it comes. You know, like this is the moment when Buck being kind of like old fashioned and the Mets being the Mets starts to come down on him. And as far as I have heard, they're not even going to have to put him on the IL. He did tweak it, his, you know, lower body a little bit. He had a bad day, but like he's not hurt enough that he's going to miss a start. So I don't really know. I mean, I think in order to get past the sort of accumulated Metsy scar tissue of the whole thing, you know, like in the abstract, that is a difficult thing to do. In the more concrete sense, you watch the team and they're good. They seem to enjoy being out there and they win a lot. And so I'm less uh, jumpy than I would have expected to be. But like, yeah, I mean, the answer is um, forearm tightness, for DeGrom, and then suddenly I'm back in uh, 2019, and everything's upside down again. So who, um, I've been thinking about this, and Tyler has refused to talk about it, but I think you did the perfect guy for this. What guy, a la Pete Rose, 
should we put into the booth and just be like, dude, just say whatever that you want. We're not going to censor you. I mean, I think, well, Pete's like a tough one because uh, he's like, the things that he wants to say are going to be like, you know, like I, I saw like Suzanne Summers at a nightclub, you know, you know, 15 years ago. She looked great. You know, it's just like, he's like not caring about baseball. The Mets have a version in Keith Hernandez that I think is like, maybe uh, it's, it's dicey because it's like, if I don't know how old, your parents are, but like talking to my dad who is 78 is like, it's a crapshoot. Like he's pretty sharp, but he also doesn't care anymore. And so there's going to be moments where he, uh, uses words that people don't use anymore, uh, to describe like public figures and stuff where you're just kind of like, you gotta like have a little more trigger discipline than that. Keith Hernandez is kind of that version, but he will talk about baseball. He also, if he gets tired of talking about baseball, will just like start sharing recipes for like grilling lamb, or uh, like tell stories about like you know whatever how nice it used to be to run around the Central Park Reservoir, but you can't do it anymore. And that uh, sort of energy of like a, a checked out parent who uh, also has like a lot of opinions on things. It's the scariest thing that you can have on your TV, and yet I think there's there's a real thrill there for sure. So wait, I'm not sure based on your answer there. Do you want baseball booths to be younger or older than they currently are? <laughs> Both at the same time. That's the dynamic that I want. I want like somebody who is like on point and knows what's going on, and then I want one person. And then also like Larry Boa should be there. <laughs> like I want somebody who's like strange constantly having to hit the cough button or like accidentally cursing but i think that like dynamic works uh but yeah like, i think you know it's weird there are like younger players that i think like you know sort of younger broadcasters that could bring that energy to it but instead i think mean, the people that at the highest level like when you hear like a rod doing a broadcast and stuff he's like tr he's a youngish guy who's trying to sound like the old guys and i think smoltz is sort of similar to that and it's just, what's frustrating about it is not just that it's, like, whack, although it is whack. It's also that, like, I want to hear what you actually think. Like, don't try to, like, be a ventriloquist dummy for, like, you know, uh, the late Joe Garagiola or whatever. Like, just, you know, like, I know that A-Rod doesn't care about bunting. He never bunted in his life. So why does he talk about bunting every Sunday? You know, like, I want to actually, like, I think anything that's less varnished would be better it's just it's easier to do that with old people because like they don't care anymore a rod makes my lunch return but let's talk real quick about the perfect guy to fit your larry boa mold it's got to be wally backman like he's oh he's yeah got, he's got the experience he's got the grizzle he's got the mustache he's got everything yeah yeah he's uh he's also authentically one of those guys where like like lenny dykstra it's like the story is too dark now Whereas, like, Backman has the kind of, like, like the kind of characters that Harvey Keitel used to play a lot in the 90s, like the <laughs> cop on the edge. That's, like, the energy that Backman brings to, I mean, certainly it's the energy he brings to, like, managing in the independent leagues or whatever it is that he's doing right now. But, yes, as a guy who is, like, a true blue maniac, who I think has also kind of accepted that he's not going to manage in the majors and therefore will just say whatever, uh, that would be great. The mustache is incredible. I mean, I remember... He was, like, one of the first favorite players I ever had as a baseball fan. And it was one of those things where, like, it was, like, you know, the late 80s. So, like, most baseball players had that mustache. And then 
I just remember sort of like seeing him as he sort of moved through the league and then he was managing and just being like, oh, that one doesn't come off, huh? Like, it's like everybody else eventually changed it up. And Wally Backman was just kind of like, no, man, I'm pot committed. I had this mustache in 86 and won the World Series. My lucky facial hair. Well, he is David Roth from Defector, expert on all baseball mustaches from the 80s and today. <laughs> David, as always, thank, appreciate thank it. you guys. Appreciate so, it. David Roth. Day from Defector. All right, we got tickets to give away. If you want to go see the comedian Zane Lamprey, Friday, August 12th. That's this Friday, a 7.30 show here in Las Vegas. We got tickets for you right now. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. If you want to go see Zane Lamprey this weekend, we got tickets for you right now. 702-364-1100, out at the House of Blues, Friday, August 12th. Be caller number five, and you'll win a pair of tickets to go see Zane Lamprey. You might have seen him at your local YMCA arguing with a U-12 coach. Let's tee it up with Adam. Wait, it's a ref segment? Wouldn't it make more sense if it was a golf segment? Whatever. Let's tee it up with Adam Candy. Our favorite referee on the show today, Adam Candy. All right, the first referee topic that I have for you is the NFL is now asking for illegal contact to be a point of emphasis this season. Uh, Illegal contact is when the quarterback still has the ball and there is effectively like pass interference type stuff down the field of play. My question, not necessarily about illegal contact, but... How do you, how do referees like get told? Hey, this is a point of emphasis. Is like, hey, you morons, you didn't call this enough last year. Start calling it. If you look in the NCAA basketball rule book, there is actually a point of emphasis section every year, and it'll list out you know the five or six things that the uh, powers that be are essentially saying. These are the things that we're not doing a good enough job of, and this is why you need to focus on them because this is how it's affecting the game. And a lot of times, I'll give you an example, when it comes to basketball, it's freedom of movement related stuff, right? It's stuff about, yeah, cutters are coming across the lane and getting chucked and we're missing it. And that's (laughs) slowing down offenses. So how about you start calling the cutters getting chucked? Uh, And essentially, illegal contact in the NFL is the same thing, right? It's receivers getting chucked coming across the middle. So that's the same sort of situation with the NFL. They're basically telling the officials, hey, look, Uh, you kind of forgot to keep calling this thing. And I think the takeaway, if you're an NFL fan, especially if you're someone who likes to potentially wager some gummy bears on games, is that you're probably going to see a little more offense, at least in the first couple of weeks, because what tends to happen is these calls that are points of emphasis, the officials hammer them in the first two, three weeks of the season, and then maybe it normalizes a little bit. So uh, the curious part about you, what you said, so referee, like when the, when a league or the NCAA or whoever comes in and says, Hey, we want this to be a point of emphasis. There's almost always going to be like a reasoning behind it. Like, Hey, cutters are getting, you know, they're coming through the lane. They're getting hit. You're not calling it. And it's hurting the style of the game. Like there's always like a reason, not just a, Hey, this is in the rule book. Call it more. Absolutely. There's there's a reasoning behind it. I can tell you that for NCAA basketball, at least, you know, what I deal with, because I'll give you another example rebounding isn't been another point of emphasis for the last couple of years and rebounding has been a point of emphasis because they're saying when you don't get that first clamp 
Then when someone swings an elbow back, you have a much worse situation to deal with. So how about we start getting the first hook that you see as opposed to waiting for the thing to escalate, right? Because I think anyone who's a former player, you put yourself in the situation, the headspace of, I've been there before. I know what that player is doing. I know that this is just two players jostling for position. I don't want to call every little thing. Well, the powers that be are essentially saying to you, right, but when you don't call that first little thing, look what it leads to, and we don't want to have to spend 10 minutes at the monitor figuring out how this all happened and why someone's bloody in the face. The numbers from ESPN on illegal contact, by the way, apparently from 2002 to 2020, uh, illegal contact was called 97 times per season, but last year it was called just 36 times. So the average over nearly two decades, uh, about a third of what they had been doing uh, last season. Now, I want to switch to baseball. Uh, Sunday, Aaron Boone got ejected. He was arguing balls and strikes with the home plate umpire, Ed Hickox. Um, my main question, though, is like when we get a robot strike zone, uh, what are managers going to get thrown out for? Ooh, that is a fantastic question. There are some little quirks in the rules that I think are still possible, right? Like, you can challenge a fair foul call past the base, but you cannot challenge a fair foul call prior to the base. How weird is that? Yeah. Right? You, yeah, it, it, well, you might have gotten it wrong if it went beyond the base, but you certainly couldn't have missed it if it happened in the first 90 <laughs> feet. Right? So, uh, by the way, and I didn't watch this game, so I can't give you a full Ed Hickox breakdown. I'm just going to go with Umpire Auditor on Twitter. It's an account I know you follow, too. Oh. Uh, Ed Hickox, according to Umpire Auditor, was worth three additional runs to the St. Louis Cardinals <laughs> in that game. Usually it's like, oh, this umpire was .64 runs yeah. for the Yankees, and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Three full <laughs> runs is a lot. <laughs> It is a big number. So, okay, you brought up Wally Backman with David Roth. He's probably upset about all the instant replay because he's got less opportunity to just blow up and get ejected and throw stuff on the field. Oh, if you look up red ass in Urban Dictionary, you're going to get a picture of just <laughs> Wally Backman's mustache. Like The fact that Wally Backman is not in Major League Baseball is understandable given some of the things in his background, but it is a shame from an entertainment perspective. <sighs> He's got. He's, still, he's always going to have some of the best ejection videos that ever exist. And in 20, 20 years from now, we might not really have very many ejection or reject or video worthy ejections because, like you said, you're going to argue the random call of whether it's fair or foul because the rules are weird or the one Alex Cora got ejected for of whether or not that home run was a home run or not. It's just. It's up. Listen, I'll give you the old man take. I miss it a little bit watching umpire or watching umpires throw out managers because they're throwing stuff on the field is great give me more of that when's somebody going to cover the plate with dirt again 